Exodus 34, and we were really just interested in verse 27 and 28. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for according to these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have made a covenant, that you have promised to us life and salvation in your Son. We thank you that this covenant is at least partially defined by the Ten Commandments. We pray that you would help us to understand what the commandments are and how they fit in our relationship to you. We ask that you would open hearts tonight, that you would open eyes, give us the grace to listen to your word and to be changed by it. We pray that for everyone here. Help me to speak boldly and powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we saw last week that when it comes to Sinai, you don't understand holiness. We saw how the people walked out of the camp, came to the foot of Mount Sinai where God had come down on the top in glory in the thick cloud with lightning and thunder and earthquake. People came up to the gate and they were planning to go up to the top of the mountain and see the face of God. And God canceled the meeting. God said, no, you cannot come up here. If you come up here, you will die. He saw that his message to his people at that time then was, you don't understand holiness. You don't know how powerful I am. You don't realize that if you come and look at my face, you'll be burned up. Remember, we compared it to walking on the surface of the sun. It doesn't matter how thick your asbestos suit is. It doesn't matter how big your air conditioner is. You cannot walk on the sun or get within 10 million miles of it. So it is with the power of God. His holiness, his surging energy, his consuming fire is such that if you come into his presence unholy, unchanged by Jesus, you can expect to die. And that is the last word before the Ten Commandments. Well, the second to last word. Remember, as we saw last week, the last word is, the mediator will go to God for you. Moses is still able to climb up the mountain and come into the presence and see God face to face. That's how we get into the presence of God, too. We come in with Jesus, who is able to see the face of God. So we talked about that last week, but I want to back up a little bit this week, or zoom out, see a broader view of where the Ten Commandments fit in our relationship to God. What we'll see is that the Ten Commandments are words for a people who are not yet able to see God. They've been brought out of Egypt, but they don't know who God is. They don't know what he looks like. 
And so he tells them in Ten Commandments, here's who I am. Here's what I look like. Ten Commandments describe for us what God desires so that we can live as his people. They correct that ignorance. You don't understand holiness? Let me lay it out for you. Here's holiness in Ten Commandments. Ten words that define and describe what God did for us and how we should respond to him. So, where, does, where do we go? Well, let's go back to the beginning of the Bible. At the very beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve were able to walk with God and see his face. And then they ate of the forbidden fruit. They're cast out of the gates of Eden. Not allowed into the presence of God. That locked gate stands between them and God. But even in Eden, even immediately after they ate the fruit, God made a promise to them. But God makes this promise in a very interesting way. He doesn't tell it to them. He tells it to the enemy. Um, This is a way of communicating that God does occasionally, not very often. Hopefully most of you don't communicate this way frequently with your family. You have a message for your wife, so you say to your kid, Mommy is going to go do this, or else. Not a good way to do it. But God does it this way because his promise to his people is a threat to his enemy. So he phrases it as the threat, and he addresses the enemy. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent... Because you have done this, you are more cursed than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So that's the first part of the curse on the serpent. Then God adds, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. The seed of the woman shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So God doesn't say, Adam and Eve, I will send someone who will deal with this snake. He says to the snake, snake, I will send someone who will deal with you. Now he says it in front of Adam and Eve. They get to hear it. And he describes this someone only in the cryptic term, the woman's seed. A descendant of the woman will come and deal with the snake. Well, who is that descendant of the woman? Well, the New Testament tells us very clearly. If you go back to Galatians 3, we just read this verse. Uh, Galatians 3, verse 16. Paul says, To Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. God does not say, And to seeds, as of many seeds, a bunch of seeds, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. So call him the seed of the woman. Call him the seed of Abraham. Abraham is a descendant of the woman. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham. Jesus is seed of the woman. 
seed of Abraham. Two equivalent expressions. So who's going to deal with the snake? Who will crush the serpent? The seed of the woman, who is the seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. That's where the promise was made. The promise was made to the seed. That's what Paul says. So God makes this covenant. God promises life and salvation by a mediator. And he does it very indirectly. He does it by threatening the serpent with death and destruction. The serpent who brought sin into this world will die. His head will be smashed. And that means that we will have life because the agent of death will be destroyed. Jesus knocks out the devil, crushes the devil, and we live. I told most of you how I was on a walk one day with a friend uh, near my parents' house in northern Colorado. We were on a gravel road and we saw a little baby rattlesnake, probably about three and a half feet long, come slithering by. And my friend bent over and he picked up a rock about this big. He got fairly close to the snake, much closer than I wanted to get. And he hurled that rock and he hit the snake right on the head. Of course, the rock was big enough that it stayed where it landed. And this guy, which I thought was pretty good for a 45-year-old man, leaped right onto the top of the rock with both feet. And he twisted that rock with all his weight until the only thing left of the head of that serpent was a little bit of a brown spot on the dust. And I always think of that moment when I see, in Genesis 3.15, God's threat to the serpent. The seed of the woman will come, serpent, and he will crush your head. The seed of the woman is coming and doing that. And Paul tells us that it's a covenant, it's a promise, a relationship, a binding relationship between God and his people. And the core promise of this covenant is that the woman's seed, Abraham's seed, comes and smashes the serpent's head, grinds it into the dust. So that is the covenant. That's the basic idea. God is going to take on Satan, and God is going to win. And Satan's head will be crushed. That is described throughout the Bible as a covenant, a binding promise that God has made. And so when we see that the Ten Commandments are also described as the covenant, we have to sit up and say, wait a second, this covenant is bigger than I thought. The covenant is God's promise to destroy the serpent and unleash life. The covenant must also be God's demands as written in the Ten Commandments that tell us, here's how to live when you've been delivered. Remember, everybody's seen a picture of Pharaoh. What does he wear on that headdress? He's got that little crown. And right in the center of his forehead, there's the little king cobra. With its mouth open, staring at you. Right. That was Pharaoh's, I want to say slogan, it was his logo. That was his symbol. 
That's what he marketed himself as. I am the serpent. I will dominate you because I am the serpent. I wear the cobra on my head. And what's happened in the book of Exodus? Pharaoh's head has been crushed. God has brought his people out of Egypt. And he's done so by trashing Pharaoh. So already we see God's promise to crush the serpent's head enacted in the deliverance from Egypt. But now that they're out of Egypt, they're out in the wilderness, somewhere in the Sinai, which is that little triangle corner of Egypt that connects it to the land of Israel. They're out there wandering. God is coming to them at Mount Sinai, in Sinai, and saying, here's the rest of the covenant. I did part one. I crushed the serpent's head. Here's part two. Here's how to live now that the serpent is headless. So that's what the Ten Commandments are. Now there are Christians uh, who say that was just for Israel. God crushed Pharaoh. That was the serpent. Pharaoh's head is gone. God comes to Israel and tells them, here are Ten Commandments. Here's how to live. But actually, if you trace it through the Bible, you see that that covenant, that promise to the seed of the woman or the seed of Abraham is for us as well. We just read it in Galatians 3. The last verse of that chapter, Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. God made the promise to the woman's seed or Abraham's seed regarding the crushing of the serpent's head. And Paul says, in Jesus, that applies to you too. Jesus is Abraham's seed. You are Abraham's seed. It's that one and many thing that Paul exploits by using the collective singular noun seed. We have several of these. You can also say hair. It's a classic joke, right? I got my hair cut. Somebody says, yeah, looks like you got them all cut. Well, we don't have to say I got my hairs cut because the noun encompasses both all 30,000 hairs and a single individual hair. Got a hair in my mouth. So it is with seed. You can say, I have seed. That might mean that you have one seed. Or it might mean that you have an entire grain ship full of the stuff. So it is. The seed is singular. The seed is Jesus. The seed is also plural. The seed is us when we believe in Jesus, when we belong to Jesus. So that covenant is for us, too. The crushing of the serpent's head is not just the destruction of Pharaoh. It's bigger than that. It's the destruction of Satan. And the promise is ours. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, and you inherit according to the promise. What is that promise? Ultimately, the promise is heaven. We saw that in Exodus 15, just a few weeks ago, where God brings the people through the Red Sea, and they sing, You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. What is the sanctuary that God built with his own hands? It's nothing here on earth. It's heaven. 
God will bring us there and plant us there. That's the promise to the seed of the woman, to the seed of Abraham, and therefore to you and to me. It's the same mediator, the same one who goes to God for us. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's described in Exodus 23 like this. God says to Moses, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. The name of God is in this angel who travels with the people of Israel. God gives his name to his son, just like we do as humans. I'm a Nelson. I have a son. He's a Nelson. My name is in him. God is saying, my son will travel with you and be your mediator. And so this covenant, God's promise to crush the serpent's head, is still valid because it has the same promises, it has the same mediator, and it has the same stipulations of belief and obedience. Believe in God. That's what Abraham had to do. Obey God. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. So today, how do we realize, how do we enact, how do we live out the reality that God crushes the serpent's head? Well, the whole Bible is about that. I want to focus on three things quickly. First change is church instead of tabernacle. We talked last week about the holiness of God as he's on Sinai. He's going to give Moses instructions through the rest of Exodus to build a holiness containment structure called the tabernacle. God lives in the tabernacle, and that way he can travel with the people without consuming them by his holiness. Now, instead of that tabernacle, we don't have a tent that God lives in. He meets us in the church. He's found in the gathering of his people. That's the holiness containment structure today. So We talked about that a few minutes ago in the Westminster Confession. The statement that we no longer have animal sacrifices and all of that. Instead, we gather and we hear God's word and partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's where God's holiness is shown. Church instead of tabernacle. Also, we have baptism instead of circumcision. In the old way of doing things, how did you celebrate the fact that God was sending the seed of the woman to crush the serpent? Well, you circumcised your sons. And that involves blood, and that involves pain. Its focus on the male reproductive organ says he's coming. The seed is coming. He's not here yet. We're still having sons in the hope of getting to the one who will be the seed, who will be Jesus. When Jesus came, that focus changed, and now the focus is baptism, where you wash somebody with water to signify Cleansing. The serpent is dead. The serpent's head is crushed. Now we can be cleaned from our sin. So we moved from circumcision to baptism. And finally, Exodus talks a lot about the Sabbath as the seventh day of the week. You work for six days and then you take the seventh day off. In the New Testament, that changes to you take the first day off. You start the week with rest. You don't have to work six days to earn a day off. Rather, you get the day off 
And in the strength of that day off, you go to work. So the emphasis has changed. The promise is the same. The promise is that God will crush the serpent's head. And how do we respond to that? Well, the answer is with the Ten Commandments. We don't understand what God is like. So God comes to us and says, here's what I'm like. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God. Right? He's describing who he is. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, bow down to them, nor serve them. And again, more description of who he is. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And so on. These commandments describe who God is as the snake crusher. And in light of that, they tell us how to imitate him, how to be like him. So the commandments are the covenant. That is, the commandments describe and define this relationship with God. The law of God is written on our heart. We know in an ineradicable way the difference between right and wrong. And we know that a wrong thing will never become right just because a politician tells us that it's right. Or just because somebody with a vested interest tells us that it's right. And a right thing won't become wrong. Right? If you really thought that, then you would have to say, well, at some point, murder, adultery, and theft could become positive goods. No, they can't. It would be logically impossible for God to say, hate me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because if we obeyed that command and started to hate him, that would be a sign of our love for him because to obey him is to love him. And loving him means keeping his commands. And if he says, hate me, then if we do, right, we disobey his command. And if we love him, it's, as, it's all contradictory. God can't tell us to do something evil. It would be self-contradictory for him to stop requiring obedience. So what's the point of the Ten Commandments? The point of the Ten Commandments is this. The seed of the woman has crushed the serpent's head. Pharaoh, with his snake headdress, is no more. God brings his people out of Egypt and tells them, this is how you live. You're not serving the snake anymore. You're serving me. I'm a jealous God. I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. The Ten Commandments describe what God is like. Do them, and you'll know what holiness is. So long as you don't understand holiness, that locked gate is in front of you, and you can't go into God's presence. Once you do understand holiness, then you resemble God. Then you're like Him in a good way. 
then you can come and walk with him once again, as Adam and Eve did, as Moses did, as Jesus does. You'll be a blessing to your neighbor, a lover of your God. So that's the Ten Commandments. They are God's covenant with us. They are his word to us that describes what he's like and how we can be like him. It happens through the work of his son who crushed the serpent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would help us to love your law and meditate on it all the day. We pray that through your commandments you would make us wiser than our teachers, wiser than the ancients. Give us light. Give understanding to the simple. Revive us, Father. We thank you for this covenant that you made, the ten words. We pray that you would help us to listen to them and obey them. We ask it in the name of Jesus, the one who smashed the serpent's head. Amen.